This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So, Cola, we left off last episode talking about the, the strike and sort of... Uh, how the the MLB came to a halt kind of at the same time that your labels were just in complete disarray and things were kind of breaking down for both of you. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about the strike in 94? Well, I, I don't remember a ton about the strike. I know that, you know, it, it happened, but <laughs> yeah, you'd have to break it down a little bit for me. All right. Well, you'll remember at this time that Ken is like becoming the man, like he's starting to get to MVP level player. In 92, he's the All-Star MVP. He hits 308 with 27 homers, and his defense is getting ridiculous. In the air, center field, long run, Ken Griffey, will he get there? He does! What a catch by Ken Griffey! In 93, he hits 309 with 45 homers. Oh, holy cow! And in 94, which was a shortened season because of the strike, Ken played 111 games, and he hit 323, hit 40 homers, which is on pace for about 55 if this season would have played out. Ken's career at age 25 was booming. But then everything stopped. Here's the commissioner at the time, Bud Selig, at the press conference when the strike was announced. And he's like visibly shaken. He starts with this long, exasperated, deep breath. I guess the only thing I have to say at the outset today is, um, like a lot of things in life, you um, anticipate something and fear that it's coming, hope that it isn't. And when the day uh, is here, uh, there's an incredible amount of sadness. So the reason all this happens in 1994 is because of labor disputes between the players union and the owners. They just couldn't agree on how to restructure the salary cap, which lets teams spend their money, sign free agents and pay everybody. The baseball season ultimately had to be shut down in August, which cut the schedule short by a couple months. So among all the teams, a total of 948 games were canceled. And the MLB becomes the first major professional sports league to lose an entire postseason because of labor struggles. It was the first time since 1904 that there wouldn't be a World Series. The gulf between the owners and the players was just was just insurmountable. That's Steve Wolf. He's a longtime baseball writer at ESPN, and he covered the strike when it happened. And mostly, mostly it was the owners' fault. You know, they thought they owned the product when, in fact, the product was the players. And they just have to work hand in hand. They still haven't come to that realization, uh, even now. Did you feel that in 94, not even as a journalist, just as a baseball fan, did your relationship to the game suffer at all? Do you still have a bad taste in your mouth from that? I do, but, but my passion wasn't so much personal uh, as it was as a father. I had, at the time, I had two sons. Uh, one of whom was eight years old, the other one was five years old, uh, and they were already baseball fans. They they couldn't get enough of it, and suddenly they lose the game. You know, I could always find something to write about, but 
but you know, they were, they loved baseball. At the time of the strike, Steve wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated that was titled Fans Strike Back. And he called this article a fanifesto. And my lead was baseball sucks. Uh, Excuse the vernacular, but I am chucking polite turns of phrase such as the national pastime will never again be the same and throwing off my cloak of journalistic objectivity so that I can reveal my true feelings as an outraged and enraged fan. The owners suck. The players suck. Baseball sucks. The strike goes on so long that the president gets involved and holds a briefing in the White House just to address baseball. And boy, he goes right for the American heartstrings. Last fall, for the first time in 90 years, there was no World Series. When something goes on for that long without interruption, seeing our nation through wars and dramatic social changes, it becomes more than a game, more than simply a way to pass time. It becomes part of who we are. We've all got to work to preserve that part. So again, I say, I call on the players and the owners to go back to keep talking, to work through this. There is still time. Eventually, the two sides make a deal and America's pastime is back. But now what MLB needs desperately is a boost something to help them get out of this sinkhole that they just made for themselves. And who better to do that than Ken Griffey Jr.? On the field, Griffey was only getting more and more famous. And off the field, he was just starting to attract more and more attention from TV shows, sponsors, and even the MLB, which was desperately in need of a new face of post-strike baseball. It was like, wow, man, we have an athlete that is just a global phenomenon on video games, on TV, on commercials, on the Wheaties box. Like, hello. I mean, you're talking about a global icon. Griffey makes his mark everywhere after the strike. And he's one of a select few that begin a movement that's now commonplace. The athlete as their own brand. But one thing that comes with blazing a trail like Junior did is that it's hard to figure out. If you push and you push him in the wrong direction you might not get a result that you're that you're real pleased with at you know especially at that time i'm alex ward i'm kola malik and this is american prodigy Even though there was no postseason in 1994, Ken showed up on TV that fall, making a cameo in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's Ken Griffey Jr., man. Who's he? He is just one of the highest paid players in baseball. Hillary, this guy makes like a quadrillion dollars a year. Hi, quarterback. How you doing? I'm kind of chilly. Want to take me to Hawaii? Sorry, I'm married. Then stop flirting with me. Hey, Ken, what's up, man? What's up? There's like that strike to control on your throwing arm, huh? Well, at least I don't have my woman fighting my battles for me. <laughs> Cola, did you see this episode of uh, The Fresh Prince when it came out? Absolutely. I mean, it was fun. It was funny, man. And it just really 
reflected on how big of a cultural phenomenon that, you know, Ken was at that time being on the most popular television show mm-hmm. and him being just like the most popular baseball player. It was dope. It's funny because even on that show, they're like, this is Ken Griffey Jr. Like he's there's a reverence. They talk about it. I mean, he was he'd, he'd already been on the Harry and the Henderson show. He did his own voice on The Simpsons. Praise him. Wow. It's like there's a party in my mouth and everyone's invited. Excellent. That's what we're really going to focus on today is how Ken became this pop cultural icon and was sort of exported to the world throughout this period. Uh, Our producer, Caroline, has been working on this. She interviewed a ton of people. Hey, Caroline. Hey, how's it going, Alex? Doing great. Uh, Caroline, you actually were the one who got us connected to Cola because you had been looking at all the places Ken showed up in pop culture. And this is the part that really interested you was the non-baseball side of Ken Griffey. How did you get interested in that part of his story? I was really into Seattle when I was a teenager, and I was really fixated on just like the culture of what was going on there. The 90s, man, it was a crazy time. I mean, you know, um, during Ken Griffey Jr.'s heyday, during, you know, Sir Mix-a-Lot's heyday, and we had the Sonics kind of starting to emerge and, and, and make the playoffs and even make the championships. Seattle was kind of becoming relevant, man, because we were just kind of this hidden gem in the northwest corner. And so it was a really cool time to be you know, an African-American athlete and young and successful at those times for the guys like us who were entertainers. I mean, it was just a really cool and fun uh, decade during the 90s, man, in Seattle to kind of be a part of the emergence and growth. Yeah, Seattle was blowing up in the 90s. I mean, not even even non-sports stuff like uh, Microsoft, Starbucks. You got bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, that whole movement coming. It's a time of kind of mass cultural export from Seattle. And Ken certainly was a part of that. And he, he became really... Uh, a celebrity, not just in Seattle sports, but around the whole country. Uh, Caroline, what was the thing that you think first really pushed Ken outside of the boundaries of the Northwest? Well, a video game came out from Super Nintendo in 1994. Yeah, I think the game came out in high school, early high school, I want to say, for me. But that was like the height of my fandom as a fan, like as, as a baseball person. My name is Mark Carrig. I'm a national baseball writer for The Athletic. Mark wrote a story last year for The Athletic about this video game. It drew Mark and other fans in in a big way. And it kind of satisfied the itch people had to engage with baseball. Baseball was my life. Then this game comes, and I'd never seen anything like it. Let me try something on my phone. Play ball! <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. Uh, and then it starts that loop. Like, yeah, right there. And like, and it would like get louder, get softer. Like, listen to the sound of it, right? Like, oh, so good. So good. Like the coaches, like, tur- like you turn to run the bases and you see the coaches waving you in, like at third base. And you're like, no way. And so it was that extra layer. So that I think to me, that's why it's stuck. So video games to that point always felt like they were made by people that did not watch baseball. Like it just never had that extra layer to it. The uniforms were right. The colors were right. uh, The cut of the grass was right. The fences looked right. It's all those little things that if you're a baseball person that you spotted immediately and was all there. The game sold over a million units and transformed what a baseball video game could be. It was this huge success. 
which wasn't really a surprise. Nintendo had bought majority ownership stake of the Mariners back in 92. All they had to do was put their team star on the front of their own video game. Nintendo and Ken Griffey Jr. in 1994 is just like, you know, that's like superpowers uniting at that point. If you're like, if you're wanting to appeal to, to kids, basically to people you want because they're lifelong customers of your product, could it get better than those two at that point? I don't think so. The game was enough of a hit that they re-released it for the N64 system in 98 in glorious 3D. And again, huge hit. So Caroline, this, this version of the game, the 98 version that we're hearing the theme song to right now, this was the one that I played hours and hours and hours until my eyes bled out because I didn't have an N64, <laughs> but my friend did. And I would go to his house for sleepovers. And this is all we did was play this game. The Mariners were so good in it. Like if your friend chose the Mariners <laughs> to play, you're like, come on, dude, way too easy. Um, you're up all night I, fighting over the over the controllers all night. Yeah. Doing the home run derby is Ken Griffey. It was just the most fun I'd ever had playing a sports video game. Totally. You know, um, I didn't play this game as far as I can remember, but my brother sure did. My older brother would go around the corner and hang out with his friends and just disappear for hours and hours. And I know they were playing this game. They all played baseball. Yeah. They all loved Ken. It was a, it was an absolute paradise for a baseball fan at that time <laughs> because you could now play in 3D and the baseball felt real and the mechanics of the game felt real. It was it was incredible. Uh, and actually, I want to jump back, though, to that. 94 game when this game first comes out like this really foreshadows like how much junior is going to help baseball recover from the strike but also how much he put the mariners on the map as a franchise because up until this point they were really bad so let me just kind of give you a quick rundown of of where the mariners are at this point since griffey joined the team it had been six seasons four of those seasons they were under 500 and two of them they were just barely over but in 95 all this changes, because Junior is no longer the lone bright spot in this terrible franchise. The Mariners are actually a team now, not just a one-man show. That season, a young Alex Rodriguez begins emerging alongside Junior. Number nine for Rodriguez is uh, the minute, second he hit that ball, you knew it was out of here. He got all of it. Seattle's ace pitcher, Randy Johnson, is in his prime and wins the Cy Young Award. The one-two pitch, Kane started it! And my boy, Edgar Martinez, has his best year for the Mariners as a DH, making his second all-star team while leading the league in runs scored and batting average. Deep to left field, Edgar Martinez, deep! Put it up! It's 5-3 on the In 95, the Mariners make the playoffs for the first time in their 19 years of existence. This team would become known as the Refuse to Lose Mariners. And the team actually has Cola remix a song just for this. Y'all know the saying, y'all know the slogan. It goes like this. Oh, we refuse to lose. Yeah, check the way we swing. Uh, oh, we refuse to lose. And right at the end of the season, the Mariners go on this crucial seven-game win streak against teams in their division. During that streak, Junior hits an absurd 448 with four homers and 12 RBIs. Yeah, check the way we swing. And in the playoffs... The Mariners square off against the Yankees for a five-game series in the ALDS. The series goes back and forth until the Mariners find themselves in Game 5 with the score tied in the bottom of the ninth, and Edgar Martinez steps up to the plate 
with Griffey on first. They could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Griffey runs the bases like a gazelle, rounding third while the throw from the outfield is on its way home. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. Now they'd lose in the next round to Cleveland. But that 95 season was a huge turnaround for the franchise. They had some of the best players in the game. They were fun. They were cool. And most importantly, they'd beaten the Yankees. Okay, so this brings us to 1996. And Caroline, uh, this is a huge year for Griffey off the field. For sure. 96 is when Nike really pushed Griffey into the spotlight. He'd endorsed their shoes before, but it was in 1996 that they released the Air Griffey Max. And that's the very first signature Nike shoe for any baseball player. The first thing I remember seeing them was thinking like, ah, okay, this isn't a stretch. That's Dr. Jermaine King, a professor at C. Smith University. He created one of the first English courses dedicated to sneaker culture and literature. Those shoes were, they were blocked correctly. His signatures were blocked correctly, so it featured the black the white and the emerald green, and they had the silhouette of what basketball sneakers were at the time. So I remember looking down and seeing that on the foot of someone else thinking like, that's dope. My next thought was, this is going to do do numbers. This is going to do well. The Air Griffey Max did indeed do well, becoming one of Nike's most popular training shoes ever. It's been re-released with new colors and styles over 20 times since it first came out, including a 25th anniversary edition that came out just this year. I tried to get a reissue, but no luck. Sold out. It's a rare success that baseball players just don't have in the world of sneakers, even with current stars like Mike Trout. And Mike Trout's shoes look great. I I bought a pair last night for $25 from Ross, believe it or not. But why was it in Ross? Because who's watching baseball outside of people like me who love it, right? Like, The market for sneakers, they're not necessarily watching baseball, even though Mike Trout might be one of the greatest baseball players in the history of sport. So to bring that into perspective, the fact that Nike gave Ken Griffey Jr. a baseball player, a sport that was not in the demographic of their marketing, a signature shoe, a company that does not historically give signatures so easily, so readily to a baseball player and a baseball player happened to be black okay now this is why he was such a phenomenon outside of the sport that they thought we have to get this guy in and to african-american men and women they knew who he was and even if they were not baseball fans even if they didn't watch baseball at all they knew what that shoe was and they knew who he was it gets you real respect when you have a shoe out versus like even just being a celebrity athlete right like when you get your signature shoe that the kid on the block can just go and grab it changes the level of profile you know in in my opinion tremendously when we come back griffey's profile hits a breaking point this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Griffey starts endorsing more and more products, and he starts showing up all over the place. Form autograph bat and ball sets from Pizza Hut, featuring some of your favorite Sorry. major league players like Ken Griffey Jr. Take the Pepsi Challenge. I'm tired. Are we done yet? Come on, Junior. I'm just down with this winning run with ACM graphics, only on Super NES. Dad, do you know what? Footlocker? Footlocker. By the way, never let your dad pick out a car for you. Oh, wait a minute. I know how to pick out cars. So I think when we watch all these ads back to back, it's really clear we are seeing Griffey everywhere at this time. But he's a very private person, right? Like, we're not really getting a sense of who Griffey is. We're just getting a sense of how good he is at baseball. And we're just seeing his face everywhere. It wasn't until later that we start to sort of meld who he is with the marketing we see. But that doesn't happen yet. What from this time and specifically with the shoes, did you find anything that sort of revealed anything about how we felt at the time? Yeah, I found one thing in an interview with Soul Collector, which is the site for sneakerheads. And um, in that interview, Ken brought up the Nike shoe contract. And Cole, I wanted to read this to you and see what you think. Okay. It was a little weird because I kept telling my mom as a kid that I was going to have my own shoe after Jordan had his. I was like 14. I'm going to have my own shoe. She was like, yeah, whatever. You know, parents, when they finally come up from Seattle and they talked about it, the first thing I did was call my mom and say, well, mom, I got my own shoe. (laughs) She started laughing and I was pretty excited about it happening. Wow. Does that sound like the Ken that you knew? Did it strike you at like, does it strike you that Ken saw that as a big deal at the time or? He took it so in stride, man. It was just like, you know, he didn't come bragging us. Yeah, you guys look here. I got a shoe. (laughs) You know, it was just more like, yo, check this out, fellas. And we're like, hey, man, I mean, we're making a bigger deal about it than he is, you know. So, yeah, I'm sure it was a a pretty exciting moment. But he took everything so in stride. man. But he did want to tell his mom, hey, look, I have a shoe. (laughs) But he didn't have to, you know, the competitor in him, the one that would play Monopoly until four in the morning until everybody was broken, wanted to lend people money to keep playing. That Ken, yeah, I'm not surprised that he made sure to let mom know. Oh, yeah, by the way, mom, I did dream about this. And now it actually happened, regardless of how you shoot it away maybe earlier. So at this point, Ken's gone from taking over 90s TV to now having been anointed by Nike with his own signature shoe. What else was left to do? 
Well, there's one last piece of canon pop culture to take a look at, and it might be the most important and notable campaign that he or any athlete has ever done. It was when he ran for president. I guess it reminds me of a simpler time when, you know, you could have fun with the political process without it getting too heavy. That's Hank Perlman. He was on the creative team at Wyden and Kennedy, the ad agency for Nike at the time. And he worked with a creative director named Jim Riswald. My name's Jim Riswald. You know, you're given a task, okay? We want to make Ken Griffey a bigger deal than he already is. You know, it's not necessarily sell baseball shoes and people don't walk around in baseball cleats but to sell a brand. In this case, the brand of Nike through the brand of Ken Griffey Jr. Jim and Hank drove up to Seattle to meet with Ken for dinner and talk through some ideas. They went to Ken's preferred restaurant, the Japanese hibachi chain, Benihana's. He loved Benihana's. You know, he liked the chopping and the shit like that. And I think it came out at that dinner that he, he was, he had this fun personality and he was like a big big kid. And I think we went back. I I don't remember the exact like moment of inspiration. It was a combination of things. It was a combination of like, I think wishful thinking that somebody like him could be, you know, president. And remember, this is all happening in 1996 in the lead up to a real presidential election. So they decide to lean into the times and make political ads that had Ken running for president. There's never been a candidate it just seemed like a fun idea and there was something fun about about politics back then in the presidential campaign and then when we presented the idea to ken griffey jr he, he he loved it they ended up creating what became two rounds of ken griffey jr for president commercials we need a man in the white house who knows the difference between a forkball and a screwball we need a man in the white house who can hit five home runs in a five-game playoff series and who isn't reggie jackson We need a man in the White House who knows an ERA is more than just an amendment. The commercials featured big-time celebrities as far-ranging as George Clinton, the famous funk band leader. We've had an actor. Why not a cinephile? To James Carville, the political consultant who helped Clinton win against George H.W. Bush in 92. If you can hit an Earl Hirschhauser slider, there's no reason to believe that you can't hit welfare reform. And the campaign took off so well, especially in the political world, because it had fun. And, you know, the political world isn't fun. And it took off in popular culture. The ad was such a hit that when Nike made the Little Penny commercials with Chris Rock, which were also a big success, they made one where Little Penny watches a Griffey for President ad. Hey, Nick, finish. This is a Griffey for President commercial. You know he's running for president, right? You know there's more to life than sports, man. There's politics. Bill Clinton was talking about it. He was more worried about running against Ken Griffey than he was Bob Dole. Shit, Bob Dole can't hit a curveball to save his life. Griswold, Perlman, and Nike started producing the second round of presidential commercials featuring Griffey. But then things went south. Griswold says that because of the fake political ads, Reporters at baseball stadiums started asking Griffey actual political questions during interviews. Here's a clip from kind of a tongue-in-cheek news segment that a local Seattle station did during this campaign. No comment about the Arizona primary. Talk to my press secretary. Mr. Forbes says he can't wait to see you in the White House. Talk to my press secretary. No other comment? No other comment. Will you make an appearance tonight after you win the primary? (laughs) No. I'm going to Disney World. Well, Ken 
wasn't prepared to answer intricate political questions, even in jest. And unfairly so on his own part, started to feel stupid because he couldn't answer, you know, well, what do you think about the 13th Amendment, you know, subsection two? He took out his frustration on thinking that people were making fun of him by asking a bunch of questions, but he was mostly upset that he was in a hitting slump, one of the first of his career, and he took his frustrations out on the campaign and yours truly. Griswold and Griffey were on set filming the next round of commercials at Fenway Park in Boston. And Ken had already started to complain about the campaign, that he was being asked too many questions. And he goes, I want action. I don't want to do a lot of fucking talking. And he didn't say it that politely either. At one point, Riswold was reviewing a rough cut of another Nike commercial he was directing with hockey player Sergei Fedorov that was full of action. It was him skating through a representative of every single team in the NHL, knocking him over and then scoring against 12 goalies, blocking one net, only to be killed by a Zamboni. A lot of action. And Ken sees that commercial. I'm looking at it through a playback monitor, and he's behind me, seething. And he took his bat and his perfect swing and obliterated that playback monitor. Well, that was the end of the campaign. Griswold says they got to finish the shoot and Ken's spots would still run, but only with the promise that they'd immediately shift over and do exactly what Ken wanted. Because later that day, I got a phone call from Phil Knight going, so what's the commercial with the action going to be? And that led to the uh, hit it here spot loaded with action. Hey, get it here, Junior! The new ad featured Ken hitting it out of the park to famous Seattle landmarks like Pike Place Market, Gasworks Park, the Space Needle, etc. My, oh my. So, you know, this was kind of, the commercial was a peace offering that Phil Knight said, whatever it costs, you know, if you want jets and airplanes, if we're going to shoot them on the moon, I'll pay for it just to make him happy. Temperatures dropped. The president stuff went out with a nice smile. We did the action spot and people were happy. You know, it was a fun shoot. He was in a great mood and I felt safe and all playback monitors were safe. But that perfect swing of his can really obliterate a playback monitor. Have you heard this story before, Cola? Is that like, is that the Ken you knew? Wow. Okay. So... First of all, I, I've, this is the first I've ever heard of that story. <laughs> that's crazy. But then in a way, I, I think that sounds a lot like Griff's flow, man, in terms of like one thing he was very, very adamant about was that people respected his flow. Like, hey, like, don't push me into a corner and put me in a place that I'm not trying to be. Don't do that to me. This is something of a turning point for Griffey, where in terms of controlling his own image, he goes from the passenger seat to the driver's seat. And he's doing that on the field at this time, too. In 97, when he's 27 years old, Griffey's fully blossomed. 
He unanimously wins the American League MVP. He hits 56 homers and 147 RBIs. When Ken came to bat, you paid attention. And you were like, hey, this dude has power. And if I slip up and, and leave that fastball up high, I might be adding some runs to the board. So I better be careful. I drive to left field. Back she goes. That ball is gone. Goodbye, baseball. Grand slam. Home run. Junior the other way. That year, he also collects his eighth straight Golden Glove Award and his fifth Silver Slugger. And for the next couple seasons, Junior continues to have his best statistical years that he'd have in baseball. And he's at the peak of his power and dominance in the sport. It seemed like the damage from the 94 strike had been repaired, with Griffey leading the way, on and off the field. Ken was operating on the highest level, you know, I mean, he was he was literally it when it came to baseball at his peak. I mean, he was literally the most recognizable, well-known, you know, baseball player in the world, hands down. Right. And that that I never reached that status as a as a uh, as a musician. Did you have a parallel at all with Ken at the time when he sort of was like, fuck it, I want to do the ads how I want to do them. Did you have that happen with your music? Like, did you release more music at the time or did you find a way to kind of break through that block at some point in this era? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I really wanted to. I really wanted to, man. And when you're signed to labels, you're kind of at their mercy. The label who bought out um, our label, uh, Nasty Mix, they began to have problems, man. And so it was kind of like a, a, a chain reaction, man, of, of different things. I actually didn't feel in control of my music. I didn't feel control of my career. You'll hear this happen to so many so-called one hit wonders that they call them and, and, and people like this or the sophomore jinx, as they call it, when somebody comes out with a great debut album, like my first album, you know, when it, when all was said and done, I mean, it still sells to this day. But to come out to my second album and for the sales to decline, it wasn't because I all of a sudden sucked as an artist and just couldn't put out good music. Griffey was on that record. If the label had, you know, had put just a video together and put that out there. I mean, with Griffey's stardom, I mean, you know, you get that into their laps, man, and you really put a video, a good video behind it. We do something creative and fun and we get Nike involved. The sky could have been the limit on where that could have gone. But instead through 93 and 94, man, it was, it was, those are some really, really uh, tough years for me, man. You know, no, it, a lot of times, man, the, the label sh- will shelf you, just sit you there, man, and not even put you out, you know, or they'll put something out, nothing, put nothing behind it. Or uh, there's a number of reasons, man, but it's usually not behind the artist. This might be a, a difficult question, but did you ever worry about your friendship with him? That like he was going to, outgrow it or become something else. Did you have any concerns? Do you remember that when you were that age? No, no, no. I, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty genuine, man. I mean, you know, I was with him on his, you know, the night before his wedding, I was with him when his dog died. He's been with me at some of my lowest and hardest moments. And I've come in as it's been like, man, dude, I don't even know what I'm going to do. And, he didn't know what to say, maybe necessarily at that time, but just I guess him being present meant a ton. 
the things that really changed us all was, you know, just kind of like getting, you know, like Ken getting married and Ken getting us getting older and having children and starting to find our lives and find our ways. Those are the things that really kind of say make you say, OK, we can't hang out every night and play spades till four in the morning anymore. You know, what I mean, a lot of what I learned from Ken in terms of being a professional was that, OK, he might hang out with us even when he was single and footloose and fancy free and all this kind of thing. Bottom line is that our shenanigans or any of that kind of thing, none of that was going to interfere with his baseball. Ken was not going to miss batting practice because he was, you know, up too late and, you know, doing all, you know, he knew how to separate his business from his personal life. We just both knew at a certain point that, man, we got to grow up. For Ken, as the 90s were coming to a close, growing up meant going home. That was so funny. I remember I, I was in a I was in a store. I can't remember. I was like shopping or something like that. And the first time when I when I talked to him and he was talking about possibly leaving the Mariners. And I was like, man, no, you ain't. You ain't going nowhere, man. I, you know, I just remember thinking to myself, there's no way that the Mariners are going to let that happen. He's a Seattle icon. There's no way that Ken's going to do that because they're going to offer him too good of a situation and too much money. This is going to, this is going to come together for the most part. I found out just like everybody else did, you know, kind of through the news wire, if you will. And I was like, what? That's next time on American prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was co-hosted by me, Alex Ward, with Kola Malik. Production and writing by myself, Caroline Losneck, and Jessica Bodiford. Editing and sound design by myself, and our music and theme song is by Kola Malik, with additional scoring by Robbie Carver. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our baseball consultant is Gabriel Baumgartner. Research assistance by Walter Heyman, and the executive producers for American Prodigy are John Yales and Peter Moses. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe, give us a rating and review, helps the podcast get to more people, and maybe, just maybe, enough people will demand a re-release of the video game. See you next time.